So, okay, we're going to dive right into the teaching because we, we are still, we feel the Holy Spirit is just keeping us on the place of outside of time, understanding, uh, changing our perspective from our worldly perspective to a king, king, kingdom perspective. And so we're going to continue with that. I think to start us off with, let's recap very quickly on um, the book of life. Mm-hmm. We start quickly then, then you can go into what we prepared. I just want to add that little bit as a, as a catch-up. Will you do that for us? Oh, we were going to pray. Sorry, I forgot. Okay. Yeah. So, so in praying together, um, the truth is, no matter how harsh it sounds, our hearts and what has been laid on our hearts is that the word of God has to be restored to its proper place. Um, so please, in praying with us for the nations, there are certain specific aspects that's needed for the end time church to arise. Firstly, we know that Satan's strategy over the history of the church has been, and before, has been to take away from humanity the Lord's name. They started in Babylon where the Hebrews started writing the name of God out of all the scriptures because they didn't want people to misuse the name of God. Now, a big part of my heart is very grateful for the fact that they did that. And on another level, it has done a lot of damage. So when people on TV and movies are trying to profane and blaspheme the name of God, they're actually not using His true name. So thank God they're not. Okay. <laughs> so when somebody s- tries to use Jesus Christ as a blasphemous name or word on the TV, it doesn't offend me because it's not His real name. Okay. His name, His Hebraic name that God the Father gave Mary to give Him is Yahushua. And uh, people don't know the name, so they can't blaspheme it. But part of our mission is to see his name restored to his bride. Okay, so please pray in line with this. This is just from the heart, not academically, not theology, not, it's not theology. From the heart we're praying, don't you think that the bride of the Lord should at least know his name? So we pray for the nations that his bride will know him by his true name. Um, not to worship, not to even to restore the word of God. His bride should in the chamber whisper his true name in his ear. Isn't it? <coughs> so we're praying for the restoration of that. We're praying especially for the nations, um, the restoration of the truth of the name Yahweh, the meaning and the eternal impact of the name Yahweh. And in that, we're seeing a lot of success. Whenever I speak to people, we speak in the name of Yahweh, and they tend to respond very favorably. Mm -hmm. So that's the first layer of restoring that. Then secondly, for us to pray together is that the restoration of the scriptures themselves will happen. What has happened in Christianity is they went and they separated the Old and the New Testament from each other. 
And then they propagated a false teaching that we can now just forget about the Old Testament and the commandments of God because we are a New Testament people. This is a falsehood. It's a lie. And so we are praying for the entire Word of God to again be honored as His complete Word from the first letter of Genesis to the last letter of the book of Revelation. His Word is His Word. He has, he has never canceled any part of His Word. We are no longer under the law because the law had been fulfilled in Him. But if you then want to live... Our, so they tell you that He's fulfilled the law, so we're now living in the fullness of the law, the fulfilled law. If you want to live in the fulfilled law, then you still need to know what was said and what it is that's fulfilled. It's common sense. So please pray with us regarding that. Then we want to especially pray that the true plan and gospel can finally reach the nations. The word says, Solani. <laughs> this gospel of the kingdom. <laughs> This gospel of the kingdom, and what is the rest of it? Will be, yeah. Will be preached to all the nations. And the consequence, the consequence of this gospel of the kingdom being preached to all the nations in his true name, the consequence is that the Bible says that all the nations will hate us for his name's sake. The Lord Himself said. So we know that if we become successful in what we're doing, the more we become successful, the more we will be hated. And the Lord Himself warned us they will drag us into courts. And hopefully in front of kings, He says, then it will be an opportunity for you to witness. And, um, and they will kill us. But the good news for those that might be killed for the gospel and hated for the gospel is there's two resurrections. The first resurrection is for those who lost their lives for the sake of this gospel of the kingdom. Okay. And they will see the glory of the Lord for a thousand years on earth. Okay. So keep these things in mind when praying for the nations. There's a whole-scale restoration work needed. Okay. We can't fix little bits. The whole thing has to be restored. Satan stole the true baptism from the church. We now have such a watered-down water baptism that people are just, they come, they dip, and there they go. When we've seen that when we baptize people, it takes anything between a half an hour and an hour and a half to two hours in the water for God to do everything that he does. The Holy Spirit cleans us out, delivers us, renews us, restores us, gives us our inheritance in Him, deposits, it is, He releases our destiny and purposes on earth. And then we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the God that created all things, the God of heaven and earth, comes and He moves into a cleaned out vessel to come and rule and reign in that person. And people think they can just dip someone, off you go. There we go. Congratulations. So we are also... <coughs>
praying for the restoration of an effective supernatural baptism. We're followed, and or as part of that, the Pentecostal outpouring of the Holy Spirit, so that we can have a renewed bride without spot and wrinkle. So we're praying for those things. That's the start. Okay. So, we have now prayed together for the nations. Because prayer is based on agreement. If you have agreed with all of this and your heart has moved as the Holy Spirit moved you, if your mind focused away from yourself and your attention and your heart were focused on what is really important, we, then it means that we came in agree, into agreement with God's will. And that's prayer. Prayer is real and it is effective when we've forgotten about ourselves and our lives and our little world. And we have moved to look from God's perspective. So in prayer, very often we start coming to God and focusing on Him, but then He changes our perspective mm -hmm. to look in the same direction as what He's looking. See the same as He's seeing. That's why the Lord, when He teaches, often says, Behold, behold. So if this has happened with us and among us, then it means that we have been praying. So we say in the name of Yahushua HaMashiach, Lord, that things that we have declared in faith, believing against all odds that this is possible for all the nations, we ask that you will not only use us, but every other believer that has come into the truth to proclaim your name, the true gospel of this kingdom, the coming of the Lord in its true form, the preeminent kingdom as it exists today and the body that will be the perfect bride of Messiah. We pray this in the name of Yahushua and we declare that Yahweh is one. Let that be known upon the earth by your spirit, Ruach. Amen. Okay. The reason we are uh, giving example of prayer in this way is because we want to move away from a little time of prayer to a lifestyle of prayer. Mm -hmm. When we speak and we fellowship in the truth, we are always in a prayerful attitude. And so we want to take the idea of now we're praying and now we've ended prayer, we're going to take that out of the way so that we start living a lifestyle of prayer. Right, now you can just recap us on the Book of Life, please. Okay, so Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, says, again, this isn't in context to the beast, but we find a truth that pertains to the saints. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, him being the beast, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, 
the Apostle Paul writes, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And then when the book of life is opened. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So this is where we started. For any of us that are going to witness to the gospel, the true gospel, we want to try and remain in a strategy, use a strategy where we keep in mind the beginning and the end. Okay, and the one thing that connects the beginning and the end is the book of life. So we all remember that. We now understand that. It's, I want to make sure that it solidifies in our mindset. It's not something that we need to remind ourselves of anymore. It's something that is so part of our truth, so part of what we know, that we don't have need to remind ourselves anymore. So the names of all those who will believe, has believed, all those that will be in the kingdom of heaven for eternity, those names were written in the book of life before God created the earth. And this changes everything. That's the same book of life that's opened that judgment. But if he wrote the names into the book of life before he created Adam, then it means we have to reconsider everything we know about the Bible. And so we've shown you and proven that this is the case. Now let's go from there. <coughs> We're going to focus on Ephesians today as our anchor scriptures. Okay. <clears throat> so, before we can officially start with today's teaching, we first have to uh, re-establish a certain agreement when reading the Word and when studying the Word. So, if you want, you can page with me to John chapter 17. <clears throat> and I'm going to read us a verse, but not to focus on the verse, but to demonstrate something. We're going to read verse 20 and 21. 
The Lord says, he prays, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Okay, just that. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. <clears throat> so, if we apply our minds, how many of us can really understand what the Lord is saying here? Does it make sense to our brains? If it does, you can put up your hand. And it, it says what it says. And so this is the agreement we are going to reestablish today. Yes or no, does the scripture say, does the Lord say here that we all will be one as he is, as the father is in the son and the son is in the father that we all may be one in them. That's what it says. So whether we understand it or not, that's what it says. Which means that Truth is not relative or relevant to how much we understand it. If the word says what it says, even if we don't understand it, or even if we don't understand it fully, we are going to believe that it is the truth. And because we believe that it is the truth, we also believe that the Lord will grant us understanding. Okay. So we're going to apply and reapply this agreement to Scripture, especially that we are reading today. But this is something that we would like all of you to reestablish in your mindsets as we read through the Word. Many times we come across a Scripture that doesn't make sense to our minds or our brains or our perspectives or our paradigms. And so our brains, wanting to understand the truth, tends to want to change parts of it so that we can understand it. However, in the long run, this will limit us from entering into eternal truth and fully entering into eternal truth. And so we want to train our minds again actively to when we come to a scripture that might not make sense to us to ask ourselves the question, yes or no, is this what it says? And if it is what it says, even if we don't understand it, it remains what it says. I'm not going to change it just because I don't understand it. Okay. So now, what's the agreement? Before, the moment we, this is a principle, we want to come back to that principle. We're not teaching on whether or not it's what John said. Teaching on the principle. Mm. When a person at first reads that the Father is in the Son and the Son in the Father, and he's praying that we be in them as they are one, then we... In the beginning, most people will not even understand a single word they're reading. Not one of the concepts will make sense to you. And yet a true believer will say, the Bible says this, so I'm first going to decide yes or no. Does the Bible says, say that they are in each other and we should be in them? Yes or no? That's what you decide on. Now we want to establish this as a principle we always follow. 
If the Bible said it and I don't yet understand it, then I'm first going to decide I'm going to believe it. Right. Why is this important? Because now that becomes something concrete. And in your process of trying to understand it, as long as you go back, keep returning to the decision you made, something concrete, then you can't get deceived, you can't get confused, and you have to keep deciding. Hmm. The thing about Christianity at large is they refuse to decide on anything. Have you noticed? The only thing they decide on is let's agree to disagree. Now, you can't be a believer and at the same time not be sure in what you believe. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Okay. So this is the process we follow. It says that we have to be one in them. Not close to them. Not in heaven. Not in them. And they are in each other. Now, if the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father... Are they two or one? Everybody answer the question. If the Father is in the Son and the Son in the Father, are they two or are they one? Are you sure? Okay. Now, if... Look, I don't know about you guys, but when they called me, they called me to be in them as they are in each other. One with them is... So now, if I'm in them, is there three or is there one? The question is, is there two or is there one? Because we've already established they're one. <laughs> See, the, the mathematical question becomes unimportant because the answer is always one. So... Just for the record, just sitting at the let's, let's quickly Let's quickly look at it for what it says. Okay, so in this world, mathematics works in a very specific way. You cannot change math. Yeah, don't insult maths now. <laughs> okay. Is it possible for you to add a hundred to one and still end up with one? In math? No. You almost said yes. <laughs> no, I was going to say something else. <laughs> Yet, in the Bible, God started adding to Himself from the very beginning, and we still end up with one. Do you guys get it? Now, you don't have to understand that. We just have to go to John chapter 17 and make a decision. Does it very clearly say that we should all be one in Him? Yes. What is one? You see, what Christianity has done is they go, yes, it says we should all be one. But in the back of their minds, they think, yes, but we're many. In unity. In unity. Together. And we'll call it one, but we're still many. Now, is that true, scripturally? No. Just plain scripturally, it says one. But yet, we, we walk away from reading the scripture. So when we read in the scripture, we go, I believe it says one. Then when I walk away, I go, 
God, I hope you're not hearing this, but I still think we're many. It's true, that's what we did. Now we've got to discipline ourselves to say, it says one. No variation, no negotiation, one. See what we're trying to do. We read it, and then we decide. And then that becomes concrete, a concrete truth that you can return to. Now it's just going to take a few years for you to understand what it is that you believe. Right. Fair enough. Now we can go from there. Okay. Do we? Pardon? Now you see, that's, that lady there is getting baptized today. The word, we're going to look at it, says that we're baptized into Messiah, because we have to be one. Yet people out there are worried that maybe they can lose their salvation or something. If you're in Him, then you're in Him. You can't separate it again. Now this is why this is so important, but it actually goes further than that. So, now you can take us on a journey. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> so we're not moving on from outside of time yet. We felt that the Lord still has some work that He wants to do. And <clears throat> we are looking at the eternal truth, truth, truth of outside of time in context to use it as a witnessing tool. And so if we are going to use the truth as a witnessing tool, then practically it makes sense to understand it, describe it, and see how it works into our timeline, to see how it's applicable to our timeline. So even though we understand that the truth is called outside of time, if we're going to use it as a witnessing tool, then we need to understand the implications that it has on our timeline. And so we've been looking at examples like Melchizedek or Melchizedek that we looked at last week. Um, we've been looking at uh, various scriptures like the one in the beginning of Genesis where it says a father and a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Uh, we've been looking at scriptures like Cain and Abel, and we know that for years we've been looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And so we've been looking at different aspects of how the eternal truth of outside of time impacts our timeline to demonstrate uh, the eternal truth. And so the way we do that is by pointing out these anomalies. We see throughout the Bible there are anomalies in the historic timeline of the world. Things that happen that shouldn't happen when they happen. Like Melchizedek showing up and serving bread and wine to Abraham. Anomaly. How does it fit in? Uh, the scripture in, in Genesis chapter 2. Anomaly. Shouldn't really be there. And so we use these anomalies to demonstrate, to show, to shine a light on the outside of time truth. But we need to remember, we need to keep in our minds that these anomalies do not define the outside of time truth. They demonstrate it, they show it to us, but it is not. They do not define the outside of time eternal truth. 
Does that make sense? Okay. Okay, let's quickly just check so everybody's on the same page because she did, wasn't here last Sunday. So I want yes. her to go home and make sure she understood what we said. So if we talk about Melchizedek, do you know the story in Genesis? Okay, so Abraham, he goes and makes, so some kings come and make war. Lot, his nephew, is living near Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a war. They take Lot captive with his family, and Abraham has to go and save him. So he has to go make war against the kings. He wins, gets Lot free. It's like a movie plot. <laughs> Beautiful then. It's like, oh, oh, anyway. So then they... On the way back from this war, so he takes all the stuff that these kings have stolen, all the livestock and stuff, then I take it back, and then something happens. It says that the king of peace, the prince of peace, the high priest of the Most High God, comes and he meets with Abraham in a valley. So Abraham is the only believer on earth, and yet there's a high priest. The law of Moses hasn't been given yet. God has not Im implemented the priesthood yet. Yet there is the high priest or the priest of God. It's not possible. And what this guy does is they meet and this priest serves Abraham with bread and wine. Where else have you heard about bread and wine in the Bible? Who was it that, had, that was in the desert and then had, got sustenance from God? Okay, good, good, very good. And lots of, lots the, of... But the most important place is where the Last Supper, remember the Last Supper? Yes, yes. The most important place. Now that's fine, because this is, this is so important. Can you read why he gives the wine again? Can you read it for us? Well, he says something specific about the wine and the bread. And this is why this becomes so important. Now remember, when this Melchizedek, the priest, comes out and serves Abraham with bread and wine, it's right in the beginning of this story. So you have the flood, Noah and his sons comes out of the ark, then all of humanity falls back into sin, they forget about God, and now God has to call Abraham again to start all over. And this is where we're at. There's no other believers. There's no other believers. The Israel doesn't exist yet. Jerusalem haven't been built yet. Okay? Now that's where we see the bread and the wine. And then, the bread and the wine, we see at the Last Supper. And this, this is important. We have to make these connections. And remember, our strategy for witnessing the gospel to people is we have to be able to very quickly explain these things to people. Because the broader world of believers out there, they don't know about these connections. Mm -hmm. It's not connected. And that's why they have separated the Old Testament from the New Testament. Because it's never been shown them that it's the same story, the same intent. Okay, have you got it? Mm. Yeah. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 28 or 27, then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, 
For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. If, it's, if the wine is the blood of the new covenant when he gives it to his disciples, then we have to now consider, is it the, the, the wine of the new covenant that is giving Abraham in the Old Testament? And if it is, mm -hmm. then we have a huge problem. See what we say. What is, what is Yahushua, the Son of God, doing in the Old Testament? Good, very good answer. But remember now, it's long before he's been crucified or resurrected. Long before he was born. <laughs> and he is serving the new covenant to Abraham. See why we do we take this strategy when sharing with believers? Because we want to sh we want to show them that somewhere Satan has established a lie in how we understand the Bible, and we're going to show you why this is important. Okay, we can go from there. Okay. <clears throat> We have a foundational building block that we call the preeminent kingdom of God. Now, many to most people, subconsciously, when they think of heaven, are inclined to imagine or envision or think of the kingdom of heaven from the perspective of them being there. Subconsciously, and it makes sense that they would. When we think of heaven, we think of, oh, I'll die and then I'll go to heaven and then I'll be in heaven. Not a lot of people think of the kingdom of heaven as existing while I'm still alive. Because it's not really relevant to someone when they are still alive on earth. And so many to most people would think of the kingdom of heaven, when they think of the kingdom of heaven, will think about it relative to themselves or relative to loved ones that may have passed already. And this makes sense. Okay. However, <clears throat> when we kind of bring it to the front of our minds and really just think about it for a minute, it cannot be true that heaven only becomes heaven when we all eventually have died and gone to heaven. Because that would mean that God is somewhere in limbo, waiting for us all to die so that a kingdom can be established so that he can finally have a kingdom to live and rule and reign in. Okay, that makes no sense. He's got this beautiful heaven. It's empty. <laughs> empty, sitting and there going like, like, I wish time would just go by. We can have someone here. <laughs> the angels are waiting. Calling... Gabriel, like, Gabriel, what's new? <laughs> He's going like, they can't worship him yet. <laughs> Angels are going like, it is so great, the time can just be over now, we can worship and get on. Okay, obviously, so that's... You're yes. wrong, they're waiting for me to get there. Well, <laughs> that might be true. <laughs> We're not going to disqualify that theory. <laughs> okay. But obviously we understand, just practically, by common sense, we understand that it cannot be true that God is waiting for all of us so that heaven can become heaven. Okay, common sense, logically, that we understand. But 
we cannot establish doctrine, we cannot establish truth on what makes sense to us because we also know that our brains can make sense of weird other things. If you think that your own thoughts have ever made sense, just stop it. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so we also know and understand that from the Bible, even though very little is really said about the details of what the kingdom of heaven looks like, how it works, what is there, the details aren't uh, discussed or described in depth, yet we know that it is said that God is the king of the kingdom of heaven. We know that Yahushua in the John also says to Pilate that he is a king and he has a kingdom. Um, we know from the book of Revelation also that he is a king with a kingdom. And um, we also know that there is biodiversity. We know that there are angels, thousands and thousands of angels flying around his throne singing holy, holy, holy. <clears throat> we know that there are cherubim and seraphim. We know that there are at least the four living creatures. We know that there are the elders. And so we know that there is a vast biodiversity and only a very small part of it is described to us. And so, irrelevant of human beings, the kingdom of heaven remains the kingdom of heaven. And he is still the king on his throne, worthy of all glory and praise and worship and honor. Okay. And we also understand that his kingdom is a kingdom right now. And his kingdom was the same kingdom 2,000 years ago. His kingdom was the same kingdom 4,000 years ago, around about the time that Abraham was alive, and his kingdom was still the same kingdom when he created the earth. Because he is the same, he does not change, and so why would his kingdom change? And through this truth, through this foundational building block, we also understand that his kingdom, if it is unchanging and if it is irrelevant to our death and resurrection and our going to heaven, we understand that his kingdom as a kingdom is outside of time. Mm -hmm. And so our creation, our earth is moving through time. We have a timeline. We know that we have a yesterday and we have a tomorrow and we know that things happen in the past and things will happen in the future. But we also understand that even though God is aware of the timeline, he is not in his kingdom moving with us through time, just in another realm that we can't see. So we might not understand how this works and this brings back to why we did this agreement in the beginning. We not, we might, our brains might not be able to understand or grasp how this works, but we understand that in his kingdom, his kingdom is not moving through time as we are moving through time, and it's just in another realm that we can't see. It is unchanging, everlasting, always the same, apart from time. Okay. So, <clears throat> who here has been to the planetarium? Really cool. So the last time I was there, and I mean, I've been there a few times, but the last time I was there, I was there with Xavier. 
and uh, we went to go watch a show about, I can't even remember what, but they were going to describe the galaxy and how the Earth fits in. And uh, so you lay back on the chair, and then they, they do this really cool presentation where they can start you off in a, in a very big city. So let's pick one of the biggest cities that I know of. It's probably Ho Chi Minh, but uh, not all of you have been there. So we're going to take a city like um, Los Angeles, because from what I understand, it's a really, really, really big city. Am I right? Okay. So... Imagine you're standing in the middle of Los Angeles or any big city that you can fathom or imagine, and obviously it feels huge. To walk from one end to the other end might take you days. Okay. But then, if we imagine, so imagine yourself in the city and then imagine you're at the planetarium and they're going to do one of those zooming out, those panning out effects. So you can even imagine... Google Maps or Google Earth. So you're watching this city, and if you zoom in on a street corner, it seems huge and vast. Then you zoom out a little bit until you can see the entire city, and all of a sudden, it, it looks big relative to other cities, but it's not actually that big, because you can see it like that. Then you zoom out some more until you look at a province or a state, whichever country you're in, and then the city is even smaller. Then you zoom out until you view the country, and now the city becomes a dot. Big dot or small dot, but it's a dot. You zoom out until you look at the continent, and you can't really see the city anymore, but it says the name there, so you know it must be there. And now as we start zooming out faster and faster until we view the entire planet, that city becomes minute. Until we zoom out and watch our solar system, and now we have no idea where we are, we zoom out until we're looking at the Earth in the Milky Way. And now the Earth is a speck, so we don't even know where that city is anymore. And at the planetarium, they can actually take you light years away. So they do the zooming out thing where everything seems like it's constant, but they tell you you're moving, and then all of a sudden, it's like the stars start moving into the middle, one by one. They start like flying past your head until eventually you see this galaxy, and it's one of those swirly things that look like a sea creature and then you have no idea where earth is they have to with their little mouse draw an arrow and go earth is somewhere over there <laughs> somewhere does anybody else feel like going to the planetarium yes <laughs> don't worry I just gave you a virtual tour because I want to see the guy that's drawing with the mouse Ugh, no man you're ruining the thing <laughs> Okay, this mouse. <clears throat> okay, let's continue. All right, okay. So back to why we did this virtual tour of the planetarium. So we said that we understand that the kingdom of God is outside of time, unchanging and eternal. That would mean... That if we were to sketch it, get out of the way, then we would end up with the same. Do you want to sit on that chair? And I'll just move to this chair. Okay. Then, when looking at time, when we look at time and we start looking at it relative from the relative point of eternity, from the kingdom of heaven, 
then we end up with a very similar dynamic. So where we are in our timeline, if this is our timeline, beginning, end, and we're somewhere over here, well, let's put us closer to the end because we have faith. We're somewhere over there. Then <laughs> <laughs> if you think of this moment, it's big because it's the moment we're in, it's the moment we perceive, it's the moment that we are actually alive and living. Until we think of our moment in context to a week, and the moment small. Or we pan out even more when we look at it from the context of a month, or a year, or 10 years, or 100 years. And then we pan out all the way until we look at all 6,000 years, because in the Bible, 6,000 years. But we don't stop there. We continue zooming out, because the kingdom of heaven is outside of time, loose standing <coughs> from time. And so we end up actually not with the timeline being this big, we end up with a timeline that if this was eternity, then we end up with a timeline that looks something like that, maybe. And I mean, this is just, obviously, eternity can't be limited. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's just so we can kind of <coughs> grasp it. <coughs> And so now, the reason we're going to look at this, so, so eternity and the kingdom of heaven is outside of time, but for us to understand outside of time, we cannot just discard and throw away the timeline entirely because we cannot fully understand light if we do not understand dark. We cannot understand dark if we do not understand light. I cannot look at the light to try and understand darkness, but without understanding the light, I'm never going to understand the darkness. And so if I want to understand outside of time, I'm not going to just ignore the timeline in totality because I'm going to understand outside of time relative to a timeline and I'm going to understand time relative to outside of time. Okay. So, I'm going to gather all my things. Are you still going to work on the board? Uh, possibly, but not right. I can stay yet. Okay. Okay. So, <clears throat> so we understand that in our timeline, from our perspective, where we are positioned and where we are moving through time, we understand that God has already done specific certain things according to his perfect will. We understand that his perfect will has been determined up until the very end of our timeline, and we are seeing these events unfold according to his perfect will and the way that he has determined them to happen, from our perspective. But then we have, in the Bible, the book of Revelation. So just to understand, that one of the main points that we want to establish is that in our process of getting to understand and grasp outside of time, with other words, that God does not exist according to our time, our perspective, and our concepts. The kingdom of heaven doesn't work according to our concepts. And if we are in Him, then we are both in time and outside of time. 
Remember, we agreed we're in Him. We'll be baptized in Him. So, enjoy your last few moments in time. <laughs> Embrace it. By the end of the day, you'll be living in two places. Exist. You will be existing in two places at the same time. We're going to prove that from the Bible today. You'll be on earth and you will be in Him all at the same time. How's that? Okay. And uh, you've been in Him in two places at once for how long now? Two weeks. Two weeks. Has it but changed? But it's irrelevant now because He's outside of time. <laughs> <laughs> he's always been. <laughs> so the moment, so up until the moment before you went into the water, you've never been in Messiah and you've only been in time for a few years. The moment after you came out of the water and you've been baptized into Messiah, you've always been in Messiah. <laughs> Makes sense. Okay. okay. So, <clears throat> from our timeline, we understand that we are seeing events still unfold and we know that there are certain parts of God's will that still lies in our future. And we are waiting for them to happen. But then we have the book of Revelation, which is what we are waiting for to happen. But if we just kind of sit back and think about what it is that the book of Revelation is. Then we ask ourselves the question, we understand that the Lord himself called John up into a, call it a vision, a trance. But we understand that John saw certain events happening before his eyes, and it was so clear that he could describe them specifically. And we also understand that he laid quite a lot of emphasis on no one changing any of the words, because this is exactly the way things need to be. He's described them perfectly for us to have faith and to know what to wait for. <clears throat> which means that somewhere, if he was able to see these things and describe these things and be so sure of them that he was going to write a letter and then confirm according to the Lord's instruction that not a word is to be changed, then that means that he had to see something that had in some realm already happened. Some way this had to have already been manifested for him to be able to see in such details these things happening before his eyes and to be able to explain them to us and then to confirm and command that not a single word is to be changed because this is exactly the way that is, is going to happen. If it were not true that he had seen these things in some realm where it had already happened, then that would mean that the book of Revelation is a probability, but not a definite. Mm -hmm. That would mean that there are certain variables, things that are probably going to happen, but might not happen. Pause. How would you feel if there was a possibility that the details in the book of Revelation could possibly change? Mm -hmm. How would you feel about your Bible? And anything could possibly change. Exactly. It, it, immediately you feel insecure. Mm -hmm doesn't feel, no, I don't want that. I want the Bible to be true. Amen. Right? Right. 
Okay. So, exactly. So, if that's true about the book of Revelation, if the book of Revelation could possibly be in flux and could possibly change according to how things develop until we eventually get there, then that would mean that our entire Bible would be in flux and variable, and that would mean that we don't have anything concrete to base our faith on. Faith, which brings us to the book of Revelation, Hebrews chapter 11. So, in some realm, I can't leave that there. So, in some realm, the realm being the kingdom of heaven or eternity, since we've panned out completely, it means that the entire timeline has to be within eternity. We can't have half a timeline in eternity and wait for time to continue so that the timeline can be added in eternity. If we thought about time determining eternity, it means that eternity now would be a half reality. Half an eternity. It, it, does it make logical sense? You cannot have half an eternity. Eternity is eternity. <laughs> so then, if the moment, and, and yet, think about what we have believed before. Somehow we all kind of believe that eternity is eternity, but at the same time, mm. eternity still has to happen. Exactly. Because now, if eternity still, still has to happen, then eternity no longer makes any sense. Does that make sense? So you see what we used to, how we, we, we believed a nonsensical thing before. Okay, so, right, when it comes to just pause for a moment, make sure, get into touch with what we never knew we believed before. You didn't, never sat down and, and thought about eternity and the fact that we, we believed two opposing things at the same time. On the one hand, we kind of believed in eternity, and we also somehow believed that eternity still has to happen. The moment you believe that eternity still needs to happen, then you no longer have eternity. It's part of that. It's, it flows from the same subconscious idea of heaven is going to become heaven once we all die, and then you know, we're resurrected into eternal life, and so now eternity starts, yeah. which makes no sense because it's eternity. Cannot have a start. Okay. See, now this is not just academic. This is going to determine your identity. This is one of those moments where we go, behold. Yes. <laughs> okay. It's going to change the way you live, the way you see yourself, the way you see everyone else, and especially those who believe. If we understand that those who are the sons and daughters of the Most High God, is eternally his sons and daughters and one with him. How will we treat these sons and daughters? How do we see them? See, now forgiveness is a non-issue. We don't struggle to forgive each other. No effort required. You see, it doesn't matter what you do against me, or how you sin against me. If I understand that eternally you've always been in him, I don't have to try and forgive you. I'm just going to go forgive you. That's it. Does it make sense? See, there's practical implication here. Okay. But if I'm not quite sure if you're actually going to be in Him, then I also don't have to really forgive you, too. Okay. Let's move on from there. Okay. So, from eternity's perspective, in eternity, Eternity has to contain both the beginning and the end and everything in between. 
Okay. Now, one of the best ways to prove this from Scripture, and I love, love, love this proof, is <clears throat> uh, there are three places, specific places in the Bible, two in the Old Testament, one's Ezekiel, one is Zechariah, and then in the New Testament in the book of Revelation, where these three prophets are we're going to, I'm going to use the term caught up into the kingdom of heaven, into the eternal city of God, the heavenly city. And Ezekiel does a bit of a description of the courts. Uh, Zechariah is kind of doing his thing, and then a guy comes walking by with the measuring line, and we know John is also being uh, given a tour by an spirit. Can't say angel. Okay, let's, let's quickly define that. Whenever you read angel you know that it goes back to the concept of spirit, and the concept of spirit goes back to bread. Mm. So, imagine, okay, something moving. Now, for something to move, something had to happen for it to move. In this case, life. So, just move away from the picture of an angel with two wings, <laughs> to, because then we have to define, is it, is it the resurrected human being, is it the what? angel? Yeah. Okay, just move to, Part of God because God is life, yes. right? Okay. okay, so we have these three occasions through the Bible where these prophets are given, and I'm going to call it like a tour of the eternal city. And then God gives what seems like a strange instruction, because one would think if you are in the eternal city of the kingdom of the eternal kingdom of heaven, then surely you'd spend most of your time in the throne room trying to take in as much of the details as possible so you can go write down what the throne looks like, what God looks like, what the angels sound like, what do they look like, how big is the throne room. Like there are details that we'd like to, to know. And yet in all three of these occasions, God, in his absolute wisdom, gives the strangest instruction. In all three occasions, there's instruction for these prophets to go measure the city. What a weird thing to do. So here's a measuring line. Welcome to the city. Please go measure it. Strange, strange thing. But absolutely magnificent. And so, I mean, one of the few things that I really feel proves inequivocally God's absolute wisdom. Because for those seeking out the mysteries, those wanting to understand the substance of faith, this becomes one of those concrete foundations that we build our existence upon. <clears throat> you see, if they can go and they can measure a city, and one is Ezekiel, which is during the um, exile to Babylon, and one is Zechariah, when they're already back, so I'm talking about thousands of years ago. And one is John, which is at least 2,000 years ago. And all three of them, at different occasions, in different times, can measure out the city. And if they can measure a city, if the city is able to, if you are able to measure the city, then the city must be complete, obviously. They end up with the same measurements, okay? So if you can measure the city, then obviously you need to be able to measure the whole city. And this God knows. So the reason he gives them the instruction to go measure the city is because this is going to prove that the city is complete. Okay. 
For a moment, imagine your dream house that you're going to build one day when you're very rich. Just do it. Now ask the person next to you to measure it for you. But the point she's making is that Almighty God, see if I was gone, I would never stop and establish what I actually wanted. And nothing would probably happen because I could... Okay. If you could do, if you could do anything, would you ever decide on what you were going to do? And then just do it and go like, okay, I'm done now. And this is what God has done. Because if they're able to measure a city, then it cannot be an imaginary city. It cannot still be like in the process of getting finished. It has to be the city. Okay. So if it's true that Ezekiel and Zechariah and John thousands of years ago could measure out, in our timeline thousands of years ago, could measure out a complete city, the reason that this becomes so foundational and so brilliant in our understanding and who we are and where we fit in is because we are the city. The Bible says that we are living stones being built into the new Jerusalem and we are the city and the Lord lives in the city and we live in the city with the Lord but we are also the city. This is in Ephesians, Revelation, Hebrews and more places. And so what the Lord in his wisdom proves to us throughout our timeline with like thousands of years apart is he proves to us that from eternity the city is complete. But it's not just that it's a building and a grand palace for God to live in. He's proving to us that the end has already been determined because at the end of our timeline, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and we understand that we are the living stones that is built into the new Jerusalem, which means that what, is God, what God is communicating to us in a brilliant and magnificent, mysterious way is that from his perspective, from eternity's perspective, we have always been there. And we are perfect and complete. We fit exactly where we need to fit. Okay, but you're seeing, are you, are you seeing, are you beholding, are you, are you getting what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Is if the prophets could measure out the city and we are the city, and then that means that from eternity's perspective, we are already there in perfection because we are the city. We are the city. And now, I want to remind you of the agreement that we established in the beginning. We have no idea what it means that we are the city and we both live in the city. But that becomes irrelevant when we are looking at the truth because that is what the word says. And I'll read it to you from Ephesians. The point is, if the word is saying it, then we just look at the scripture and we go, yes or no, is that what it says? My mind cannot fathom. Even John writes in his letter that we do not yet know what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall see him as he is and we shall be like him. Okay, so we don't necessarily understand what that means, that we are both a city and living in the city, but we understand that the scripture is saying that. And now, if we just 
See, if we do not, if we have a, yes, maybe that's what it says, but I don't really understand, then the profits measuring out the city really doesn't mean anything if we are not sure that we are the city and that that's what's important about it. But the moment that we answer, yes, that's what the scripture says, and that becomes a foundation in what I believe in something concrete, now the fact that the prophets can measure out the city becomes a, a, a magnificent and glorious truth that is going to give me direction in my life and understand where I belong in the greater scheme of things. Now let's go to the practical application. Mm. Practical application for you. If we now take this truth, and you look at the road ahead of you, what we call to live as, in Messiah. And you realize that at the end of it, you are perfectly part of the whole in Messiah, the city. All that is the kingdom of heaven. You're part of it. Not just in it, part of it. Part of the substance of it. So you're no longer just a small figure standing in the heaven one day. You're part of the perfection of it. Because you are in Him and Him in you. And you are part of the whole body. Now take that and bring that closer and then look at you walking out your road from that perspective. All of a sudden you can do it. It looks like, I can do this. I can serve God. I can live the life. I can love Him and I can walk this out. I can fulfill my calling in God because the calling is just to be conformed to Him. See, this reality changes the way we approach our walk with God. If we approach it from me being stuck in time trying to get there, then I feel like I've failed before I've even started. And then we resign ourselves to making the mistakes that we're going to make because we're going to make them anyway. But if I understand that He's perfected us in Him, I'm part of the perfection. I'm part of the existing preeminent kingdom of God. And with every day I'm moving forward on that road, I'm becoming more and more like that because I'm moving closer. You can't but move closer. You can't reverse that process. Okay, even if you sleep for an entire day, you've still moved closer to that point. So, so you actually can't mess it up. If you understand what that is, and you're living according to that, you can't really mess it up. See, it makes our walk different. It makes our prayers different. Now, when I'm opening the Bible, I'm not trying to understand. I'm just coming for him to teach what he was going to teach me today. The Bible becomes less intimidating. Prayer life becomes less intimidating. Loving each other, forgiving each other, walking together with each other becomes less intimidating because all we do when we come together is we're going to walk out what he has prepared for us in perfection. So now, love, hope, joy, the hope set before us, all that stuff starts becoming real. It's not just an idea anymore. Mm. Now we've got to go to Ephesians so we can yes. land it in Scripture. So I just want to do one last. Okay. So, why is this important when looking at the eternal truth of outside of time? So we've been 
and draw the timeline moving on. So we've been looking at time, and as a witnessing tool, we've been teaching you and trying to show you ways to bend the timeline. And we've been doing that by pointing out anomalies, like Melchizedek. Da, 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 da. <clears throat> and all of this, we said last week, comes down to the truth of covenant, but not just covenant because contained in covenant is basically all other eternal truth. But so what could seem, like it could seem, that if we just focus on the timeline, that round about here the cross happened, here is the new or fulfilled covenant, and it might seem by pointing out these anomalies that if we have Abraham over here and King David over here, that to them is coming covenant and promises and faith from this side of the cross, right? Which would cause it to be anomalies anyway. But like we said, the anomalies do not define outside of time. They just prove it, but they do not define it. Okay. So what actually happens, and this is why we're looking at this perspective today and outside of time, is because I need to draw eternity smaller for me to do this sketch, so there's another eternity. <laughs> okay. So if we have our timeline over here, and the cross over there, then it's not just that across time things are moving, so from here to there, from there to here. Everything that's coming into our timeline is coming from eternity to Abraham, to King David, cross to us, back into eternity, but then it comes back out because we understand that we have what we call prophetic cycles, prophetic unfolding. And this continues across time, but it's not coming from the future or coming from the past, and it's not time travel per se. It's all coming from eternity, going back into eternity, because this way there is no beginning and end. But it is all connected and it's all flowing from eternity back into eternity. And in the end, we have what we, what we understand as prophetic cycles, prophetic unfoldings, parts of God's plan that we see unfolding again and again, bigger and smaller, all pointing to the same thing. But it's not coming from the future and it's not coming from the past. It's coming from eternity where there is no beginning or end and where all things are true and have happened and have been established. So now we've introduced something new today. In the past, I have been showing you that everything in the Old Testament is part of God's prophetic unfolding. Everything in the Bible unfolds toward the fulfillment. But this we took from the beginning and towards the end. Now we are helping everybody see that it doesn't necessarily work from the past to the future. Because the prophetic unfolding is not bound by time. It's going to unfold in time. Mm. Mm. But because the cross is working backward, remember grace is bringing from the fulfilled perfection of God's work into our timeline. 
So grace is actually working backward toward us. And the cross had to work backward because he had to create Adam in his likeness and his image, but first he had to be perfected as the Son of God so that there could be a perfect image to create Adam out of. We all knew that he created Adam in his likeness and his image, but what was that likeness and his image if the Bible says that Yahushua Messiah is his likeness and his image? But if he hasn't been born yet, then how could he create Adam in his likeness if the Son of God is the likeness? See the problem we sat with. But it actually, prophetic unfolding has no beginning and end. Is it starting to make more sense? Okay. Now, I want to just use this, I want to give you this picture. This is why it's important for us. If you're an architect, you can help us. Somebody came to you and he said, I want you to draw up plans for my house. But I haven't actually decided on the place where I want to build my house. It can be anywhere in the world. I'm still going to decide on a piece of land and then I'll buy it when I see the right piece of land. But I want you to design the house so long. Would that be easy? Would it be possible? Sloped, level. Expensive house. <laughs> most most architects would just go like, "Are you crazy? No. So how do you, how are you going to work out a budget? If it can be anywhere in the world, you can't do any of this stuff." Okay. Now the guy decides, "I have got some idea of what my house should look like. I just haven't decided on where to build it." Then he goes to build his warehouse and he orders 9,000 bricks. And some sand and cement. Yeah. <laughs> Pays for it. And they put it on the truck. Now what? They go, so where do we deliver this? Oh, no, no, no. I don't I haven't know decided yet. yet. Put it on the truck. But look, I just want to make a start, so let's just get everything together. Okay, now what? Okay, so... Do you see how this impacts on the way we've been reading our Bible? The first thing you do is you go buy the land. Now you have something concrete to put everything else on to. Okay, now if the earth has been created and then, what happens to the earth in the end? What does the Bible say? It's passing away. So that can't be the concrete, can it? <laughs> so if his purpose for creating is to have a household to build his church to save humanity, then the earth can't be the constant. Because that's passing away. See why this is so extremely important. Now, let's we just have enough time to show them what the book of Ephesians is about <coughs> and what it says. We want to work towards the one-man reality there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, so I'll, you can fill in the blanks. No, you're making sense. Okay, good. Okay, Ephesians chapter 1, we'll start at verse 3.
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Yahushua HaMashiach, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Messiah. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Now, I'm going to interrupt myself here. Part of the reason why we are so in love with the New King James Version is because they, in their translations, have not touched the tenses of the sentences. And we're going to see that, especially in Ephesians, the tenses become very specific and very important in understanding truths like these. They, they demonstrate it, they show it, they prove it. Okay. So, what they've done with the NIV is they just corrected the tenses so that it makes more sense from our perspective within time. And in changing this, the, the tenses, they basically wiped out everything that God wanted us to know. How do you feel about that? I want it back. Let's read that again. Let's unpack that a little bit. Let's look at what we're looking. Let's see what we should be seeing. So notice that sometimes in the same passage, in one passage, Paul is going to write in past tense, and then he'll write in future tense, and then he'll write in present tense. But the present tense is becomes not irrelevant, but, I mean... When is present? Because it was present for him and it's present for us now. Okay. So we're going to focus on future and past. And we're going to take it to the two extremes of beginning and end. And then we're going to see what he does and how he... Well, it's gone now. But how he shows <laughs> what I drew on the board. <laughs> You've memorized. Okay. I hope you all remember what I drew. <laughs> so, it's very important to understand that whenever... Paul especially writes about and John all the time. <laughs> Whenever he refers to the now, it cannot be the now. Not the now as we understand it now. Okay, so this is what we want to focus on. Listen to what it says. It says that God the Father blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Messiah. Past tense. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Now that seems like he's, He did something in the very beginning for something to be true in the very end. Okay, so God decides on an outcome. God decides on what He wants to do or what He wants something to be. He's decided. Now... Now that he knows what he wants, he's going to make sure that that is the outcome that he is going to have. And the way he does this, so, so that you, let's reread it, so that we could be holy and without blame before him, so that we could be holy and without blame before him, he chose us in Him before the foundation of the earth, or the world, and so that we can be holy and without blame before Him, 
He blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places before He started creating the world. In Messiah, He blessed us with these things so that we can be holy and without blame before Him. So we yes, He's making sure that we understand that so that you and you and you can be holy and without blame before Him, before He started creating the earth, he blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Messiah so that you could be this. How much did you have to work and to do? How much did you have to do to earn this before the foundations of the earth? Can you remember how hard you worked? Sure, it was a tough time for me personally. <laughs> I remember the toiling. I remember like it was yesterday. <laughs> So it doesn't mean we don't, we're not going to make some effort. It doesn't mean we're not going to devote. What are we devoting ourselves to? We're devoting ourselves to that which He did for us mm. and gave us and established already. That's what we're devoting ourselves to. So look, if you fail at this, it means you have to make an extraordinary effort to fail. Yes. Exactly, Grace. Everything in the Bible ties into every other thing in the Bible. If you wanted to. Yeah. That is why the Bible, if you start to understand the Bible, it ends up being really complicated for a while and then it becomes really easy. Okay, does it make sense? And we want to get to the point where we work through the complicated so that we can get to the easy. Because now the point is, we want to show you that this entire thick book, I've got more than her. <laughs> because I worked harder before the foundation. <laughs> My Bible is smaller now. No, guys. Did you hear that, Lord? <laughs> okay, now, normal, normally people can accept all that. They can accept all that. Until we read the rest of the sentence. Okay. It says, Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Yahushua Mashiach to himself. And this is where people go, mm -mm -mm. Hmm. No, this I can't. I can't accept this. You see, we can accept that God's will is perfect and that he has finished his work and that he predetermined everything. But the moment we uh, we tell them what the Bible says, that He also decided to save us, then they go, no, no, that can't be, because it has to be us that decide to be saved. So we'll make sense to a certain point and then refuse to make any more sense. That's what people do. But it says, does it say, now remember we established an agreement it says that the Father is in the Son and the Son in the Father and that we should be one as they are one in them. We established that. Now, can we just quickly all pause? Now, remember, we're not teaching you something new. We're demonstrating how we should be speaking to others when we are trying to show them the truth of what the Bible says. So then, 
most of the Christian world has rejected this part of the Bible somehow. Just refuses to accept it. And this is what we need to do. You just need to go, can we just decide, yes or no, no buts, no explanation, just yes or no, does it say, having predestined us to adoption as sons? Yes or no? It's yes. Definitely says that. Okay, so he adopted by having predestined us to adoption as sons by Yahushua to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, if, this, if predestining us in Messiah to adoption according to his perfect will was for this purpose, this is why he did it, to the praise of the glory of His grace. If He did all of this to the praise of the glory of His grace. If we deny predestination, someone that denies predestination, what are they in effect doing? Denying Him the praise, denying Him the praise of the glory of His grace. That's in effect. That is why Satan has established the lie that says, this cannot be true, because then those that say predestination is not true are actively denying Him the praise of the glory of His grace. Sure. Sure. So can we make another decision? None of us want to be part of that mm. for a single moment. But this is not where we want to work towards. We want to now... Okay, so then it says, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In the beloved. See, we're back at the same truth. <clears throat> but in. also, up until now, I mean, obviously, everything is past tense. So it seems like we do have this concept of everything that he did do. But it might seem like he did all of this so that there can be a determined outcome one day when the outcome happens. But then he says in verse 6, by which he made us accepted in the beloved confirming that everything that was said before has already been completed. So it's not just that he had determined it and now waiting for his will to be established, but it says that now, by all of this, he has made us accepted in the beloved. So it's not just determined, it had already happened, has already happened. See, now we end up with an almighty God again. Okay, so, we're not going to move on. We want to... We cannot lift out all the prophetic unfolding out of Ephesians like we wanted to. So we'll have, have to move on to lucky. what is the mystery of his world that he made known to us. Can you just focus quickly there? Okay. Verse 9 <clears throat> and 10. Having made known to us, made known, past tense, the mystery of his will. Okay, so... When did he make known to us the mystery of his will? <laughs> Somewhere in the beginning. Because for mo <laughs> mo most, most, look, we've, we've focused on, the, on what is the Christian world believing right now. Because look, I'm not asking what is Muslims believing. It's got nothing to do with me. They don't read the Bible, so why would we ask that? We are, <laughs> we are trying to understand 
if we're reading God's great plan, I doesn't help I understand, but I don't understand what the rest of the Christian world is saying. And if they're saying the opposite, then we have we now have a purpose. We understand what we need to do. Right. Okay. If everybody knew this, okay. Imagine for a moment, everybody understood all of this. Then I don't have a job. So God made it mysterious so that you could have a job. Precisely. <laughs> he knew I wouldn't be good at anything else. So, so, okay. Think for a moment. If it says that he made his mysterious world known to us, when? Today, folks. No. Not today. <laughs> okay, so what did you say, JP? When? Okay, that's true. But then you still have to be born. And that's when your memory starts. And then humanity still has to be created. So it's true outside of time. <laughs> but in time, when does he start making the mystery of his world known? Because we've got to always think, what does the rest of Christianity believe so that we can understand where we need to bring answers. Is there an answer needed? Because otherwise I just can go, I can go hiking or bird watching. But because the world needs answers, we have a mission. That's why we're equipping so much, because answers. So a lot of the, a lot of the Christian will think that this world was made known round about the cross. Mm. That's, what, that's where they all start. They all start there. Our mission is to prove to them that he started making his entire world known from the beginning. That's the part of the truth that Christianity has lost. And why did they lose it? Because Satan wanted them to believe something else. So, can you tell them, when did he start? Well, a good guess would probably be when he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And where is that written? In Genesis chapter 2. Why would that prove his will? Who did he say it to, do you know? To Adam and Eve. Who was Adam's father? Dad. But that wouldn't make sense for Adam to leave God to cling to Eve. <laughs> So did Adam have a dad? Did Eve have a dad? So literally God creates, so he puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib, creates Eve, brings her to Adam. Then Adam says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman. And then it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But Adam has no one to leave because he does not have a father and a mother. So why is it written right there? Why isn't it written when Cain and Abel decide they're going to take wives? Hallelujah. Do you understand that it takes, it takes people months to understand what you just understood? He's speaking out of time. And why is it important? Because where does this truth link up in the end? Who knows? When the bride finally comes down says, Behold the city, the new Jerusalem, the bride. And that's why he puts it in the beginning. 
so that the God can make His mysterious will known to us from the start, because now we know we can trust Him. Before there was anybody on earth with parents, God says, this is my plan, this is what I'm going to do. And then at the end of the book, somewhere for us, in the future, but where God is, in the now, the bride is already perfected. It teaches us God is almighty and He does what He says He was going to do. And this links into Ephesians that says His will is made known to us. And now, even if we continue reading, we're going to see that it, it refers to the same ultimate truth. So, verse 9. Having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times... He might gather together in one all things in Messiah, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. So can everybody go for this week and meditate upon this truth in relation to what we showed regarding outside of time? Why does this become so extremely important? Because part of our mission is to restore to the mindset of believers the truth that God is indeed Almighty. Because people say God is Almighty, and then on the other hand, they say God is saving, trying to save everybody in the earth, and yet He's failing. Now you end up with no Almighty God anymore. Okay, so in the 1800s, did everybody get saved? In the 1700s? In the 1600s? Did everybody get saved? Did everybody go to heaven? In the 1500s? 1400s? 1300s? Was there ever a time when anybody, where everybody got saved? Is there a possibility? Historically, do we know if in Hitler's time did everybody get saved? <laughs> <laughs> So on the one hand, the Bible tells us that God is almighty. And yet, ever since the cross, God's been trying to save people and failing. So something's wrong with our understanding of the Bible if we think that. So as offending as it might be, we have to end up with an almighty God. So we have to let go of our idea of how things work. And what makes them all might. So the point we're making isn't to offend people. It's just to reestablish that God is indeed almighty. So that we can have something concrete to work from. See, once I have uh, come to understand through the word that God is in control, whatever he determined to in the beginning, that's going to be the reality in the end. Without variation. Because God cannot fail. Once I've established that, then I can start to live my life from a place of being secure and confident. No more fear, no more anxiety, no more doubt. Now we're starting to overcome doubt, unbelief, fear, anxiety and worry. You cannot overcome fear, anxiety and worry because you decide you're going to be stronger. <laughs> 
uh, overcoming fear, anxiety, and worry is based on who God is, and who God is almighty, and His will is perfect, and it is done. See, now I can start to overcome. Does it make sense? Mm. Now we all only have to implement it on a daily basis. How do I implement all of this complicated, all these complicated truths? How do I implement it on a daily basis? How do we overcome on a daily basis when it comes to my life, my situation, all the challenges that will be passing and fleeting? Your eyes on that. Finished. So it doesn't matter what's happening now, his will is perfect and finished. It will change the very way we live. Okay. 